raise your hand and the usher will be happy to bring one to you because we're primarily looking at one verse today, but we'll be looking at a couple of other verses that are related to it. Um, before we begin, let me hold uh, you and this service up in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for today. Uh, thank you for our being able to meet here. Thank you for each one of these people who's here in person or uh, watching this uh, on Facebook. Lord God, I pray that uh, Max and Charisse, I understand they're doing well, that uh, they will have a complete recovery and be back with us uh, next week. And Lord God, uh, I pray that, that you would, that your word would get through to each one of us, to me and to everyone else here, that our lives would be changed, that we would become more like you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this is the third Sunday of uh, Advent, and the theme this Sunday is love. Now, since Advent is the season of looking forward to and preparing for the coming of Jesus, there's probably no better verse in the Bible uh, to signify this theme of love and the coming into the world of Jesus than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But there's actually something of a danger with this passage, particularly at Christmas time. And the danger is twofold. First, the passage is so familiar to many people that we may tend to think, I've heard or read this dozens of times and there's nothing new to see here. And second, Advent and Christmas make us think of the baby in the manger and new mothers and connote to many of us families at home sitting around the fire, eating turkey, giving presents, memories from our childhood, and warm, fuzzy feelings. In fact, however, that's not what this verse is about at all. But before we can talk about this, we need to see the context of John 3.16. Verse 16 begins the final paragraph of a lengthy discourse that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, which began back in chapter 3, verse 1. It began with Nicodemus coming to Jesus and Jesus telling him, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. So the general context is about how to enter the kingdom of God or, to put it another way, what it means to be born again, or, to put it yet another way, believing in Jesus. Because entering the kingdom of God, being born again, and believing in Jesus are just different ways of saying the same thing. Now, when the Bible was written, uh, they did not use quotation marks. So some scholars think that verse 16 uh, uh, it begins Jesus' concluding remarks to Nicodemus, while others think that Jesus' own remarks ended at verse 15, and verse 16 uh, begins the Apostle John's commentary on what Jesus had just said. It really doesn't matter, uh, because the words are the same, and the thoughts expressed here are clearly consistent 
with what Jesus said elsewhere on multiple occasions. So whether they're John's words or Jesus' words, they give us Jesus' thought. Now the specific context is John 3, verses 13 through 15, which says this. These are the words of Jesus. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now when verse 14 talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, Jesus is talking about his being nailed and lifted up on the cross and dying. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us is, I'm not like you. I came from heaven. I did not come here to engender warm, fuzzy feelings. Instead, I came here because you and everyone else are living under a death sentence. And not just physical death, but what the Bible calls the second death, the lake of fire of eternal judgment to which you will surely go. But I have come to change that. I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I am going to die on the cross and pay the price for your sins, which you could never pay yourself. And if you want to have eternal life and enter the kingdom of God, you need to believe in me. That is what verse 16 is summarizing. That's what John 3.16 is all about. Now we're going to look at both of the phrases that make up John 3.16 and see how they fit together. The first phrase focuses on God, and the second phrase focuses on people. Then we will see what that implies for our lives. So, we begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This tells us that God gave the most precious, valuable thing he could possibly give to demonstrate how much he loves us. Now, the Bible makes clear that God is Trinity. There's only one God, but he is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, many people find this hard to understand, and there is indeed uh, a mystery to it. But I think the idea of Trinity is reasonably understandable. For example, I have some show and tell. I have this box here, but any three-dimensional object illustrates the same point. This box has height, it has width, and it has length or depth. Now, the height is not just on the edge, but it pervades the entire box. The same with the width. It pervades the entire box, as does the length or the depth. They all three fill the entire box, and you can't separate them, and yet they are distinct. Um, and the Trinity is kind of like that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. In a sense, they pervade each other. You, uh, but, uh, so there's only one God, and yet each one is distinct. 
And as with the Trinity, with this box, if you take away any one of those dimensions, you don't have a smaller box. You don't have a box at all. And it's like that with the Trinity. If you take away any one of them, you don't have a smaller God. You don't have God at all. Now, another illustration. Some of you who know me know that I like to drink lemon tea. Um, lemon tea consists of three elements. Tea leaves, water, and lemon juice. Now, they all fill the entire mug, and uh, you can't separate them. And yet they are distinct. If you take away uh, any one of them, you don't have lemon tea anymore. If you take away the lemon juice, you still have tea, but it's not lemon tea. If you take away the tea, uh, you, you just have lemon water, but you don't have lemon tea. You don't have a smaller amount of lemon tea. And again, it, it's an illustration, and that's true of any liquid compound. Uh, they, they all are together. I can't physically separate them, and yet each one of them is distinct. Now, if you want to know more about this, in our Ecclea book on Christianity and Islam, uh, we have a lengthy section explaining the Trinity. We have a number of examples from real life, so to say, uh, including the two examples I just gave, but we also show how the idea of Trinity clearly is derived from the scriptures. Um, and our book on Christianity and Islam is on the ECLEA website, on the courses and resources page of the ECLEA website, which is www.eclea.net. You can download it for free. Now, the Bible says that God is spirit. You cannot divide a spirit into thirds. So when verse 16 says that he gave his only son, that is telling us that God really gave himself. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, became a human being to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Why did he do that? The reason is indicated in the second phrase of John 3.16, which says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we all have a problem, and this problem is more deadly and dangerous than we realize, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of history. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 say, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Adam and Eve did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happened to them did not affect only themselves. Instead, the death that became a part of them, they passed on to every person that has followed them, including us. Now, the problem is not just that we will die physically. My atheist friends think that when you die, you simply cease to exist. That is not true. We will all continue to exist after this life in this body, 
after it ends. The real problem is what the Bible calls the second death. It's also called the lake of fire, or outer darkness, or eternal punishment, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that will go on forever. Last week, when we talked about the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, uh, at the end of that passage, Jesus says that the goats, quote, will go away into eternal punishment, end quote. Can't we fix that? The answer is, no, we can't. Why not? The reason goes back to the problem that we all have. In John 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Paul says the same thing in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, which says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. In those passages, God has diagnosed the problem of humanity as we are naturally. Our problem stems from what the Bible calls indwelling sin. Now this sin is a power, and it lives inside of us. It warps our minds, our emotions, our feelings, our will, and our actions. And that's why Jesus said, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you out of your heart that defiles you. Things like evil thoughts, lusts, murders, slander, theft, everything. You see, our problem is deeper than we think. It goes to the very core of our being, to our heart. And we can't change our heart no matter how hard we try. Let me show you why this problem of indwelling sin is so dangerous. It's so dangerous because it's so subtle and hidden. Um, what do I mean? Well, when Jesus said, people love the darkness rather than the light, and Paul said, no one does good, not even one, uh, most of us think, well, that's really kind of an overstatement, wouldn't you say? Yes, I've done a few bad things in my life, but I'm basically a pretty good person. And most of the people I know are good people. I don't love darkness at all. Well, when we think about this, we all tend to compare ourselves to people who are obviously worse than us. Hitler, Stalin, even a garden variety criminal. And we haven't done those things, so by comparison, we're pretty good. What we don't realize is that the power, it is the power of indwelling sin that causes us to set up a false standard for comparison, and then causes us to think that we meet that standard. 
but the true standard uh, of comparison is not other people. God does not grade on a curve. Adolf Hitler does not set the standard. Instead, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, the Bible says that every human being was made in the image of God, and therefore, our standard for comparison is not Adolf Hitler, but God himself. And if you want to know what that looks like for human beings, our standard for comparison is Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is God who came to earth as a human being. So what does this have to do with believing in Jesus so that we will not perish but have eternal life? Well, God is perfect. The Bible also says that God is love. He is perfectly loving and holy, by which I mean he is without moral sin or moral imperfection. He's perfectly just, compassionate, and merciful. He is generous, wise, and perfectly good. Can any of the us say that about ourselves? The Bible says people look to the outside, but God looks at the heart. How often do we really look deeply at what we are really like on the inside, in the deepest corners of our heart and mind where the sun rarely shines. If you're a Republican, when you think of Democrats, the Democrat Party, or Governor Evers, is your mind filled with thoughts of love? If you're a Democrat, when you think of Republicans, the Republican Party, or Donald Trump, is your heart full of love? Or consider this, have you ever lusted uh, after a person of the other sex? Jesus says you're an adulterer at heart. Have you ever been angry with someone or uh, ever called someone names? Maybe while driving your car. Jesus says you are a murderer at heart. Have you ever stolen anything? That makes you a thief. I mean, after all, if you only murder one person, that makes you a murderer. And you can't defend yourself in court by saying, but look at all the people I didn't kill, or look at all the things I didn't steal. To put it another way, when Jesus says, people love the darkness rather than the light, we need to understand that there are many ways of darkness. Even uh, an outwardly good life that does not love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and does not love your neighbor as you love yourself, is the way of darkness. Because it is putting yourself at the center and marginalizing both God and the people who have been created in the image of God. 
That is why we cannot save ourselves by doing good deeds or by choosing to reform because sin is inside of us and has become a part of us. As Jesus said, the standard that we are held to is perfection. But once a person sins, it is impossible ever to be perfect. And we've all sinned in thought, word, and deed many times. For that matter, we can't even meet our own standards, let alone God's standards, and even our good deeds are tainted with sin and typically arise from mixed motives. So if we're trying to go to heaven by doing good deeds, that alone makes our good deeds not good. Why? Because then the motive for our deeds is selfish and self-centered. You know, if I'm helping some poor person, I'm not doing it to help the poor person, I'm doing it to help me go to heaven. So it's actually a selfish motive. Therefore, no amount of good deeds can atone for our sins, since they themselves are tainted with sin. That is why we need Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and people. Now, what's a mediator? A mediator is someone who brings two parties who are at odds together. Now, a good mediator has to be able to relate to both of the parties. That's why Jesus had to be God to relate to us. And that's why Jesus had to be a human being. Uh, he had to be God to relate to God. And that's why he had to be a human being to relate to us. And that is also why Jesus never sinned, either in thought, word, or in deed. He was perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. So he lived the life that we should have lived. And that qualified him to step into our shoes, die the death, and pay the price for our sins that otherwise we would have to pay. To receive the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus brings, all we have to do is to believe in him, as John 3, verse 16 says. Believe in who he is and what he has done. Repent of our self-centered lives and turn to him. Ask him to come inside of you, be the Lord of your life, and start working in you to change you and make you more like himself. And he will do that. Now, if we believe in Jesus, what does that imply for our lives? John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When we think of eternal life, most of us think of living in heaven and on the new earth forever. And that, of course, is true. But fundamentally, eternal life is not just living a very long, 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 long time. Eternal life is not uh, a 
quantity of life so much as it is a quality of life. In other words, eternal life is a different kind of life. It is the life of Jesus being lived out in us. Now remember, last week, we talked about the fact that when we come to faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, who actually comes to live inside of us. We receive the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. When we come to Jesus and receive him as the Lord of our life, we become what is known as being saved. But then, in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we are to work out our own salvation. In other words, we are to live our lives with Jesus as our new frame of reference. The Holy Spirit will guide us and work in us to change us. Because the Holy Spirit is now inside of us, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As a result of this, Jesus' life, his values, his priorities, his will, his love, and his compassion become our lives, our values, our priorities, our will, our love, and our compassion. That is the goal of our faith. That is the goal of believing in Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. As we become conformed to the image of Jesus, it will affect what we do with our money, our time, and how we treat people. In fact, what we do with our money, our time, and how we treat people shows whether or not we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. So what does this specifically imply for our lives? Well, that gets back to the first half of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The key implication for our lives is that now we begin to live lives of love. Just as God is love, and, and God so loved the world by sending Jesus, so now we are to love people just as God in Christ has loved us. How central is love? Well, so central is love that Jesus said that the entire Bible is founded on just two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now think of this. If Jesus really is the new center of our life, 
then more and more he will be in our mind and on our mind. And just as he loved us, as we think more and more of him, he who is the sum total of all perfection and all goodness, we will begin loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And love your neighbor as yourself? Do you realize how radical that statement is? It means that now we love ourselves supremely, but as the Holy Spirit works in us and changes us, we will start loving our neighbor with as much time, thought, energy, and money as we now spend on ourselves. Love is practical, and it affects every area of our life. How central is love? Well, so central is love that in 1 John 4, verse 8, the Apostle John said, the one who does not love does not know God. And in uh, 1 John 4, verse 20, he added, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The reason is that since all people are made in the image of God, how we treat God's image shows what we really think of God himself. God is not fooled by lip service. That's why he puts people in our path every day. Because every day, how we interact with people really is showing what we really think of Jesus. Think about that. How central is love? So central is love that on the night before he died, in John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment to love one another even as I have loved you. And then he added that love for one another is the one sign by which all men will know that you are my disciples. So, how did Jesus love us? Well, I would say first, he loves us equally. Jesus didn't play favorites. He loved women as well as men, Gentiles as well as Jews, the marginalized as well as the powerful, the poor as well as the rich, the uneducated as well as the educated. Second, he loves us truly. He didn't just say that he loves us, but he demonstrated it practically. When people were sick, he healed them. When people were hungry, he fed them. And above all, he loved us sacrificially. He gave everything he had in order to restore us to fellowship with God and with one another. So, how are we doing in these areas? How much are we playing favorites? How practical is our love? 
How sacrificial is our love? How much is it costing us? God so loved the world that he gave everything he had so that we would have not a life of darkness and death, but a radiant, new, divinely filled and divinely led life of love. That's what John 3.16 is all about. Now, now, there was a hymn written in the 1960s which says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Can that be said of us as a church? And let each one of us ask ourselves, can that be said of me individually? John 3.16 may be the most important verse in the Bible. It really summarizes the entire gospel, but we have to take it into us. If we really believe what John 3.16 says, it will, slowly by slowly, start becoming obvious as we work out its implications in our lives. Just as God in Christ loved us, so we are called to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let it truly be said of us. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this magnificent verse that is far more important than most of us think about and realize. Lord God, I pray that you implant these truths deeply within us, in our hearts and minds, and by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you bring the truths of John 3.16 to our hearts and minds every day and start changing us so that we will be conformed into your image, have your values, your priorities, your will, and your love, and that people will see it in us and will see through us that you are alive and are changing lives. We ask all of this.